The reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit in his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thank you, Roger. Uh, just as Josh is bringing my flip chart into position, uh, I wonder what you were thinking about when you heard Roger uh, reading that passage. You're right, Josh. Subtle, really subtle. We're such a professional outfit here. <laughs> 
Um, I wonder what you were thinking about when uh, you were hearing Roger read that reading. I I wonder if you're thinking, I haven't got a clue what Jesus is on about in that passage. It just makes no sense to me at all. Uh, Maybe uh, you, uh, like me, were thinking, oh, you know, I don't like it because it just feels, it grates with me. Uh, It feels all about judgment and separation, and that doesn't sit right uh, with me in this sort of 21st century culture that we live in of inclusion and uh, tolerance. It just doesn't sit right with me. Uh, I don't like to think of God as being like the judge that we heard about in that reading. Uh, I wonder if, on the other hand, you might have been sat there thinking, oh, this just feels odd for me in terms of what I understand Jesus to be all about. Because actually, it seems like Jesus is talking about if you're really good, you'll go to heaven. And and that doesn't sit right with me because I believe or I've been taught my whole life that actually to get to heaven, uh, you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for you, and then you'll get to heaven. To be honest... It's often in these sorts of difficult passages of Scripture, in the most uncomfortable places in the Bible, that we begin to discover more of who Jesus is, more of what being a follower of Jesus actually involves. And so let's be open as we look at this rather difficult, tricky passage of Scripture tonight and be open to what God wants to say to each of us. Some of us who are already Christians tonight, I hope that for some of us, this passage uh, will help us to encounter more fully and deeply who Jesus is and what it means for us to be disciples of him today. And if you're here tonight and you haven't been in church for a while, it's great to see you. And I hope that as we look at this passage, uh, for you, you will perhaps begin to understand who Jesus is, and what Christians actually actually believe. Uh, Let's just pray before we get stuck in. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word. Thank you even for the passages that are a bit, uh, make us think, oh, I don't want to look at this. It's horrid. I don't really understand it. It's just really complicated. Lord, speak to us. Speak to us simply. Show us more of who you are. Reveal more of what it means to follow you through our lives. We pray that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three things uh, that we're going to pull out of this passage tonight from Matthew chapter 25. Uh, We're going to look at how Jesus is a just judge. First, we're going to look at how Jesus is a just judge, and then how Jesus um, identifies with the least, and then we're going to look at how it's all about having our insides out, our insides out. That sounds more gruesome than it actually is, so don't worry too much. I'm not going to do open surgery up on the stage. Firstly, Jesus is the just judge. At the beginning of this passage, Jesus is painting a picture of heaven, uh, of what it's going to be like at the end times. And he describes himself as the Son of Man. And he's taken his place on his glorious throne. And before him, we have this picture of all the nations gathered before him. And he's dividing the nations uh, as the sheep and the goats. Uh, The sheep are on his right. So who's that? You guys. Okay. And the goats are on his left. You guys, you're not really 
family, don't worry too much about it. Um, the sheep are on his right and the goats are on his left. They're not really sheep and goats, they're people. He's just using it as a way to help people understand. And as this scene develops, we encounter a scene of judgment where one group of people are being judged and found to be right. They're blessed and they receive the inheritance of eternal life in the kingdom of God. Whereas those on the left, they're found wanting and they're sent away to eternal punishment. And we think, ah, that's horrid. God, you're so harsh. Why do you do that? When I was at middle school, we had middle school first, middle and senior school where I lived. Uh, I was at school in Shipler in West Yorkshire. Um, I used to catch the bus to school. And for the journey home, the bus company used to provide a school bus that we were meant to catch uh, to go home. And uh, we used to go and wait outside the school and the bus would turn up sometimes. But quite often, the bus either wouldn't turn up at all or it would turn up really late. So my, my school finished at 3.30, this school did, and often the bus wouldn't arrive till 3.45, 3.50. But just down the road from my school, uh, there was a main road, the main bus route that would literally take me to outside my house. And so me and my friends that lived around where I lived, uh, we realized that actually it was much quicker and more efficient to get home to watch telly, because we didn't have other devices in those days, um, to go down to the bus stop and catch the sort of mainstream bus home. It was much quicker to do that. One day, uh, we were in assembly in the morning, and our deputy head, Mr. Caradice, I remember him well, um, stood up in front of the school and said that the bus company were getting really cross because not enough people were catching the bus, and it wasn't cost-effective for them. So all the people that went down the road to catch the normal bus weren't allowed to do that anymore, and we had to catch the school bus. So dutifully, at the end of that school day, we all stood outside the school and waited for the school bus. 3.30. 3.35 came and went, no school bus. 3.40 came and went, no school bus. 3.45 came and went, and there was still no school bus. And me and my friends, we were like, this is ridiculous. We're just stood here. There's buses going. We could be at home watching Sons and Daughters or whatever it was uh, that we were into. Some of you know that. Um, it was like neighbors, but like loads better. Um, and and we, we could be down on the street catching our bus home. And so we just thought, right, stuff it, we're going. And so we literally pelted down the street so that Mr. Caradice wouldn't see us to get the bus home. Got the bus home, went home. Next morning, me and my friends summoned into Mr. Caradice's office. Somebody had seen us escaping and going to catch the normal bus home. I was absolutely mortified. I literally think I'd never been told off in my whole school life before then. Uh, and, I was, and we got an absolute rollicking from Mr. Caradice for disobeying the rule that he had set that day. I, being me, explained the situation. And that actually, you know, couldn't he see that the bus company were in the wrong and we were in the right? And Mr. Caradice could agree. But despite that, he still gave us a detention, my one and only detention in my whole school career. And you can tell that I'm still scarred by that experience. I was unjustly treated by Mr. Caradice, age 12. I was 12, not him. <laughs> Since the beginning of time, humanity 
have had a deep sense of what is right and wrong. Uh, We've been aware of the deep pain and the suffering and the injustices uh, in the world. There's a a sense, there's a sense within us all that things can be out of kilter. And so we long for things to be right, don't we? Uh, To be put back in balance. We long for this thing that we call justice. Uh, Tom Wright, who is an amazing theologian based at St. Andrews, uh, comments that justice is one of the most profound longings of the human race. Justice is one of the most profound longings of the human race. And central to this desire is that God is the one who has the power and the might to bring about justice, to ensure that evil is punished that wrongs are righted, uh, that pain is healed, and the broken are made whole. That's God's job. We want to see justice meted out by God. We want social justice. We want justice for refugees. We want justice for those who are abused. We want justice for the victim. We want justice for ourselves when we're treated badly. But justice involves judgment. If one person is right me, then another person is wrong, Mr. Caradice. Judgment results in some being shown mercy and compassion and others being punished. But actually, when it comes down to God being the judge, we get all confused and tangled, don't we? We want him to condemn and punish those who cause genocide or commit acts of terror or abuse or traffic children or treat us badly. But we don't want him to judge people simply because they choose to live life their way rather than his. And this is the fundamental problem here. We want God on our terms. But God, in his very nature, he cannot be both uh, loving and merciful if he's not also fair. And if, he's, uh, if he is just, then love and judgment both have to be features of his character. And so through this passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 25 that Roger read, we see vividly the whole character of God. And because we have the whole character of God in in this story, in this account, we have a picture of the king on his throne pronouncing judgment across the nations, but we also find somebody who is showing mercy and showing compassion and is identifying with the downtrodden, the persecuted, the stranger. So firstly, we see that Jesus is a just judge. And secondly, we discover that Jesus identifies with the least and the lost. Jesus identifies with the least and the lost. Uh, There were once two strangers in a lift, uh, a man and a woman, uh, and the young man was tidying himself up in the lift, uh, gazing at his reflection in the sort of nice shiny surfaces uh, you get in lifts, uh, rather preening himself. He stood there and was sort of, you know, rubbing his shoes on the back of his trouser leg, trying to shine the edges of his shoes. He was on his way up to an interview. 
and he wanted to look his best. He wanted to be ready. The second person in the lift was a young woman. She'd met the young man downstairs and found out what he was there for and had offered him to take him up to the room where the interview uh, was taking place. Uh, She just stood there quietly observing this young man to her side as he preened himself getting ready. And when they exited the lift, uh, the young man turned to the woman and said, oh, would you mind bringing me a coffee, please? And so the woman dutifully went off and got a coffee uh, for the man, brought it back to him, handed it over, and then he turned to her, tried to make conversation and said, you know, how long have you been a secretary here? And he didn't reply. Uh, She then said, oh, this is the room uh, for the interview, opened the door, let him in. He entered the room and there's a table and behind the table are uh, two older uh, gentlemen, obviously senior executives in the uh, the company. They're already waiting for him. Uh, They beckon the man to take his seat, which he does. The woman then walks round to the other side of the table, sits down in the spare chair between the two men and proceeds to lead the whole 45-minute interview. She was a senior manager in the company. The man probably really regretted that misjudgment. I doubt very much whether he got that job. He'd been standing alongside the lead interviewer the whole time, and he had failed to recognize her. In this scene of judgment that Jesus paints uh, for his followers here, uh, the king says to those who are on his right, take your inheritance, come into the kingdom of God. Why? Uh, Because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. And the people on the right turned to each other and said, Did you feed him? I didn't feed him. Did you invite him in? No, I didn't invite him in. Did you go see him in prison? No, I didn't go and see him in prison. What on earth is he on about? And they say all this to him. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to eat? And Jesus turns to them and says these words, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus is the king. He's described as sitting on his throne. He is all-powerful, almighty. He is the judge over all creation. He needs nothing. And yet here he is identifying with the least. He's identifying with the outcast, the invisible, the person on the edge, the unwelcome. And he is closer than they can ever think. He identifies personally and powerfully with the least and the lost. Whatever you did for the least of these, Jesus says, you did that for me. Not long after saying all this, Jesus is taken away. He is taken captive. He is abandoned. He is beaten. He is falsely accused. He is stripped and afflicted and persecuted, and he is nailed to a cross. Jesus knows what it's like to be the least, to suffer and to be abandoned and to be vilified. And so Jesus is saying to his followers, when you offer hospitality, when you invite people in, when you're kind to people, when you welcome, when, when you clothe and feed the least in your communities, then it's as though you're doing that for me. 
because I have been there and I know what it feels like. I came to seek and save the lost. I came to bring, uh, uh, let the captives free to bring sight to the blind. I've been there. Many of you uh, will know about Mother Teresa, uh, an incredible nun, a very small uh, nun, who gave her life to serve the least, the poorest of the society uh, that she lived in, in Calcutta. Those who were literally thrown out by their relatives because they were dying and their relatives didn't have uh, the ability to look after them. And they were literally thrown out on the streets. And Mother Teresa came and lifted them and took them to her place where they were looked after and given respect and uh, shelter and care and love. And she said this, Our work calls us to see Jesus in everyone. He has told us that he is the hungry one. He is the thirsty one. He is the naked one. He is the one who is suffering. These are our treasures. They are Jesus. Each one is Jesus in a distressing disguise. So Jesus is the king who is the just judge. And yet he also identifies with the least and the lost. And thirdly, It's all about being inside out. It's all about being inside out. Good works, these works of service and kindness that Jesus is talking about, are all about an outward sign of our inner transformation. It really struck me as I was looking at this passage this week uh, that those that are put on the right, those whom Jesus calls righteous, they're right with him, They had no idea initially uh, what they'd done to deserve to be given the reward of this inheritance uh, of the kingdom of God. Uh, There was no sense that they had done good. Uh, They had served the stranger in order to gain brownie points uh, from God, to get into God's good books. And Jesus literally has to explain to them, like step by step, how he has noticed these acts of kindness and service towards the stranger. And they've become part of his judgment criteria. Uh, they say to him, Lord, when did, you, uh, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or see you needing clothes and clothe you? And that's when he says, truly, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So if doing good works was not their motivation uh, to get to heaven, what was? What is? It's all about being inside out. What we're seeing here in this story that Jesus told are believers whose love for God has naturally and spontaneously just spilled over into compassion and love for everyone, the stranger, those on the edge, those people that they don't even know, those outside, those people they don't even recognize. So good works in themselves are not how we get to heaven, but rather are an outward sign of our inner relationship and our love for Jesus. They're like the overflow of what's going on inside. Think of it like this. Uh, Dave is our rector here. Lots of you know Dave. He'll be up in a few moments. It was Dave's birthday yesterday. You can all congratulate him in a little while. Um, I expect his cake looks something like this. Uh, The bonfire of candles on Dave's birthday cake 
all 764 of them, they didn't make him his age. They didn't make him his age. In fact, the great number of candles on his birthday cake didn't make him even a day older than he, than he was on Friday. The candles on the cake didn't make him his age. The number of years since he was born made him his age. The candles were just simply a demonstration of Dave's age. These good works that are listed by Jesus are not a means to salvation, because if they were, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die and rise again to atone for the sins of the world. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. It's simple. Jesus' death and resurrection is what saves us. Uh, Lots of you will have seen uh, this diagram. It might have even helped you to understand uh, what Jesus did for us on the cross. If you haven't, it's just going to be a delightful revelation for you. Uh, Some of you will have seen this diagram. It's known as the bridge diagram. It helps us to understand uh, why Jesus uh, came and lived and died on the cross. So you've got us over here, me here, humanity. And then we've got like God over here, like this, God and, and we, we uh, read the Bible and we find out that actually um, the relationship between me and God is broken by this thing that we call sin. It's that stuff uh, that we all do wrong that separates uh, me from God because God is holy and I am not. And so I cannot have a relationship with God uh, because of this rubbish in my life that builds up and gets in the way between me and God. But the Bible explains to us that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus. He broke into time in the person of Jesus. And Jesus lived and he spoke and we've been looking at his words tonight. And then he died on a cross. And when he died on a cross, he took upon himself uh, the sin of the world, the sin that actually should have been mine, that actually should have led to my death. And because of uh, Jesus' death on the cross and the fact that he rose again and conquered death, it means like there's a special bridge, do you get it? Um, That is open uh, for me to have this relationship with God. If I put my faith and trust in God now, Jesus has made it possible for my sins to be forgiven, for me to have a relationship with God and have the gift of eternal life. That is the good news of Jesus. It's incredibly good news for us today. But if I go, yeah, that's great, and I decide to follow Jesus, and that's where it ends, then it's like I could just basically live my life how I want. You know, I can hunker down, I can come to church on a Sunday, I can have a lovely spiritual experience when I'm worshipping with this incredible band, doing Christian karaoke, because that's what it's like, but it's great. Um, You know, I could just go through my life, plowing on until I die, and I go to heaven, happy days. But that's not what it's like. That's not what it should be like, because Jesus has called us into a relationship with him. On the 29th of August in the year 2000, I met John Talbot. We flirted outrageously for a few days. 
We got to know each other. We started our relationship with each other. A year to the day later, he asked me to marry him. I said yes, and on the 28th of December, 2001, we got married. It was, in reality, a lot more complicated than that, but just stay with me for the purposes of this analogy. When we sealed the deal and got married, that was not the end of the story. Being in a relationship was just the start, in a way, of that adventure. That moment we say yes, or I will, or I do, that is just the start of a lifelong adventure. When we say yes to Jesus, like many of us have done here, like Margaret and Abby and Georgia have, we become his disciple. And that means that we should be walking with him on a lifelong adventure. It's not the end. It's the start of the rest of our life. Paul puts it like this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by work so that no one can boast. That's the bit that reminds us that there's nothing that we can do, no good works or acts of kindness or helping strangers that can save ourselves. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. But then Paul goes on and says this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works are like the outworking of our salvation, an outward sign of the inner transformation uh, that Jesus has brought for us. James put it a bit bit more bluntly, James wrote another book of the Bible, when he says this, faith without actions is dead. You get it. Faith without actions is dead. Jesus is saying, if you love me, if you've said yes to me, If you've decided to follow me and become my disciple, it has to look like this, that you join me in loosening the chains of injustice, that you join me in setting the captives free, that you join me in sharing food with the hungry, that you join me in welcoming the stranger, listening to the lost, clothing the naked, That sort of stuff is what being my disciple looks like. That is why here at P's and G's, uh, we preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, but we also aim to live it out as well. Here we're all about growing whole life disciples and bringing the whole of the gospel to the whole of society, not just people that are like you and me. Jesus is saying, if you love me, show my love. Serve people as though you were serving me and I was stood right physically near you or laying physically in front of you. Serve those that you live with at uni sacrificially. Be the one to take out the bin every week. Offer hospitality to that person uh, that you've noticed around the place who's struggling with their work and just seems to be a bit on their own. Give someone time, invite them over to coffee. In your workplace or in your school, notice the person who is always on their own. Have lunch with them. Listen to their story. Welcome them into your friendship group. What an incredible gift that is. Get to know the elderly neighbor down your street. Watch out for them. Be a friend to them. 
Or help out with that family that you've noticed live near you, who seem to be struggling. You've noticed them out and about. What can you do to show Jesus' love to them? Some of us might be challenged uh, to influence on the public stage by engaging perhaps with political organizations uh, to bring about policy change that is not just about making the rich richer, but transforms the life of those that are oppressed on the margins, the forgotten or the needy. Get involved in a campaign or a charity which is working to alleviate poverty and bring freedom for captives. The need is great but the opportunities are great too. And so tonight, if you don't know Jesus yet, then can I encourage you to think carefully about what we've looked at, about who Jesus is. He is the king. He is mighty. He is the just judge. But he loves you so much that he thought you were worthy enough to come and live amongst, to speak to, to die on a cross for, to raise to new life for, to forgive, to give you the opportunity to have new life with him. And if you're already a disciple of Jesus, if you've already said, yes, I want to have this relationship with you, then think about how your inside love for Jesus is flowing outside We cannot and we must not sit back smug in our ivory Christian towers. We must get out there and be Jesus and bring Jesus. Jesus transforming love to others. Let's pray.